0: Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Happy New Year to everyone, and I hope you have a great 2022 ahead. Our interview guest in today's episode is Matt Doyle of MLSsoccer.com. Before we get going, we're starting a World Cup year now, and you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including 13 magazine-style stories in our first four months, and lots of free posts as well. That's grantwall.com to get my posts in your email inbox the second they go out. Gift subscriptions are also available. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. In segment one today, Chris Whittingham joins me, and we'll talk about a couple of big Premier League games this weekend and some big moves by Americans Ricardo Pepe and Daryl DK. We'll have Matt Doyle in segment two, but let's bring in Witty. Happy New Year to you, my friend. How are Happy you?
1: Happy New Year, Grant. The uh, is, is this going to be like this every year, what the transfer window is to European clubs in the summer? Is it going to be like this every year now going forward where there's big transfer stories for us to
0: talk about? Well, with MLS players and the MLS market getting so much bigger as a selling market, it certainly seems that way, right? And clearly now, with January 1st hitting... And even though it was a weekend, news coming officially and unofficially on a couple of U.S. players we've been keeping an eye on. Officially, Daryl DK moving to West Brom on a full transfer, by the way. So not alone from Orlando City. Nine and a half million dollars, the reported figure on that one. And then Ricardo Pepe. We're still waiting on a figure. We're still waiting on an official announcement because the original $20 million figure seemed really high to me, to Augsburg. Which apparently has swooped in, and there's got to be a story here about this uh, that will get very interesting. Some American investors with Augsburg, David Blitzer, a guy to keep an eye on, and that name in your head, because he's another guy who may be buying Rail Salt Lake. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll keep an eye on that potential transaction. But even if Ricardo Pepe isn't $20 million, it's going to be a significant amount of money. And to a place where he's going to potentially play, maybe more so than he would have at Wolfsburg. Do you want to go ahead and talk about these to start things off as opposed to holding it to the end of the segment?
1: And it was interesting because I was talking, I would say the reaction that I got from a lot of soccer fans who I know that maybe aren't as dialed into this as we are is Pepe can only do as good as Augsburg. Like Augsburg seemed like a strange place because... It's a point above the relegation zone. It's not even really one of the big clubs in Germany, right? If it were Leverkusen, if it were, you know, Monchie Gladbach, some of these clubs we've seen in the Champions League recently, then that would be one thing. But Augsburg seemed like a strange move. But first off, as you said, that that amount of money... You know, even if it's slightly less than that, reported $20 million is a massive amount for a player like Ricardo Pepe. If you're FC Dallas, you're shouting yes into the phone. And then for Ricardo Pepe, it, I think if this transfer were happening in 2021 or 2023, I'm not sure he goes to Augsburg. But this is specifically, and we've talked about this before, a World Cup year transfer. Where yes, it's a lot of money. I imagine you know Augsburg probably clearly demonstrated their interest. I've also looked at their recent games. It seemed like they played decent stuff. Their XG numbers recently have been good. Their form has been pretty good recently. Their possession numbers. So it's not like it's you know Josh Sargent at Werder Bremen or even Norwich now. So I understand the reasons for the move, but still, this is only happening in my view because it's the World Cup. He wants to move to Europe but he's got to play if he wants to hang on to that number nine position. And so here he is going to a club that's a point above the relegation zone in Germany.
0: Yeah, I'm with you on all that stuff. I guess one thing I would also say is the number on the transfer fee that Ricardo Pepe goes for is going to be used by a lot of people, including probably MLS, as a sort of measuring stick for future MLS transfers. And this is something that they've done in the past it makes sense and yet the inkling we're getting without having full information yet is that maybe this wasn't a total market move if you know what i'm saying because augsburg has never paid more than ten and a half million dollars on a transfer before if it does turn out that this is american david blitzer's money saying i really want ricardo pepe instead of wolfsburg and we're going to get him even if it means paying above market value, then I find that to be interesting, but also potentially not a market-setting move for MLS players.
1: Do you think that's a level of nuance, though? That when moves happen in the future, when you know, which would, would whoever the next big young American star is, do you think that a potential buyer is going to be like, oh well, you know, Augsburg paid twenty million for Pepe, but there was an American. Like, I just don't know if that caveat is really going to survive. Time, like I think we'll think about it now, but I don't know, like if in the summer or next winter or two years from now, like I, th- that's going to play on the mind, especially if Pepe goes to Augsburg and scores a bunch of goals, plays really well as a good World Cup or whatever. I think the 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 quality of performance, I would say, is more important than that detail necessarily.
0: Potentially, potentially. I guess I would also ask you the question: When Christian Pulisic went for seventy-two million dollars to Chelsea? How much of that was because he was American? I mean, I, I don't think a lot, but I don't think if he was non-American, it would have been $72 million.
1: Well, okay, but on the flip side, American has usually been something to hang as a, as a pejorative. Like, that's usually been a bad thing in the world transfer market. So, like, I don't know because, yes, understanding, you know, NBC, all of their marketing materials have Christian Pulisic's face on it. Even for like, you know, Paramount Plus, their Serie A coverage has Weston McKinney's face all over it. I understand as a marketing tool, it's effective. But also, American players had not been respected until Christian Pulisic got that amount of money from, or, you know, Chelsea paid that amount of money to go and acquire him. So I I, I don't know. I mean, I certainly hope that these players continue to play well. We'll talk about Christian Pulisic scoring a goal today for Chelsea, uh, and and he and he, you know, finally getting a, a decent patch of form in the Premier League. But I, I, I don't I don't necessarily think that, that it's always been a positive to be an American in the world transfer market or that these that American investors being involved is really that like hurting him that much when really it's just about Not not only can they play well, but do you trust each individual club, like FC Dallas? FC Dallas has the trust now of the world market. I think every club in MLS has to earn the trust to continue to build this up. And Dallas, I think, now are at a point where major European teams are are ready to pay money for their players.
0: No, I'm I'm, I'm with you on most of that. And and I would also say that, yeah, you're right. For many years, American players were undervalued. So if suddenly a few guys are potentially uh, overvalued to an extent on the transfer market, I'm not I don't have a huge issue with that. Mm -hmm. I just think it's important to, to understand some of the market forces at work. And I would say the same thing in the other direction on the reports of Lorenzo Insignia potentially joining Toronto FC on a free transfer this summer, where Toronto appears to be offering Insignia like crazy money above market salary to try and get him... To choose to play in MLS during a World Cup year when the precedent there is that it hasn't been great for Italian national team players to get playing time when they come to MLS over the years. So I like I just find it interesting that in some ways when the United States is connected to the international transfer market, in either direction, we're seeing offers of what I would say are is above market value. We've seen this in the past when Clint Dempsey and Michael Bradley and Josie Altador came uh, back to MLS. So it's, it's something just to keep in mind, but I do want to ask you about Daryl DK as well, because he ends up going to West Brom, joining the coach that he played for at Barnsley, where he had a successful loan last year, still in the championship. But this seems to be a much this is a bigger deal, right? This is a full transfer, and it seems like a good move for DK.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's certainly having that manager trust is a big thing. And I, speaking of manager trust, I think he has to, he has to earn Greg Burhalter's because I think since the Gold Cup and what happened there, I, I was surprised in the November window that DK didn't get a call. He was playing well in MLS. And remember, after Ricardo Pepe, he went with Jesus Ferreira as his backup rather than DK, who was scoring goals in MLS. And I'm actually not sure if this move helps him in this regard. It helps DK's career, getting to Europe, West Brom are fourth in the championship and they'll have a, a, as good a chance as any to get promoted next season. But the style of play that West Brom employ is pretty hideous. And it's a, it's a <laughs> lot of long balls. It's super direct. I mean, it, if, if it's anything like what Barnsley played last year, it's barely soccer, right? It's Red Bull on at, at its highest level, just pressing and long balls and direct, and like it, you're not going to see the beautiful game out of out of West Bromwich Albion and out of Daryl Dike. So, I don't know if Greg Berhalter looks at that and goes, "Well, this isn't really how we play." But I would also expect Daryl Dike to go over there and score goals and tap into a bit more of his physicality, his goal scoring ability, all the things that are going to make him a success in my view in the championship. But It's a really good move for Orlando. Again, each individual club has to establish their identity in terms of producing and selling players. Orlando are going to begin theirs with Daryl Dike. And now with new owners, you'd imagine there's an investment. Their young players, their academy should be a lot better than it is given the catchment area that they're in. And so... I I, it's a good move for Orlando. It's a good move for DK on a club side in terms of the progression of his career. I just don't know if it's going to help him in in the context of the national team.
0: I wouldn't say exactly though. And I really like both these players And, and Pepe had some big goals, especially at the start of World Cup qualifying. But I don't think anybody has a stranglehold on the starting center forward spot for the United States right now. And I think that's A question mark heading into a big year?
1: Yeah, and uh, you know certainly Pepe is going to have to hit the ground running, right? I mean, he's he's the incumbent, but I guess the issue with that position is that you don't look at anyone right now and go, "Well, that guy is clearly lighting up, lighting it up right now at club level." Pepe hasn't really been in goal scoring form since probably August on 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 a a club basis. Uh, DK again ended his MLS season well, but that didn't even earn him a call into the December camp. Which was, I, I thought, really surprising. So I, I don't know what Greg Berhalter's thoughts on him are. And then, you know, you look, you know, up and down the. I mean, Jossi Zardes is probably going to get another call in because the manager trusts him. Josh Sargent probably won't because he can't even play center forward for Norwich, never mind score goals. Uh, Jordan Fuck might be in with a shout just because, you know, he's going to score goals in Switzerland and he's he played at European level. But. You're right. I mean, the the position right now does not look at a place where there's anyone who's really going to take control of it or the the, the backup options are clearly established.
0: And this is a good transition into some Premier League talk because Christian Pulisic did score a really nice goal today. Uh, Ended up being the equalizer in a wild first half. 2-2 it ends up against Liverpool. And granted, Pulisic you know, started out wide today. Terrific finish, kind of an up and down game because he he botched a real chance early in the half. But credit to him for coming back and and just being absolutely great on that finish uh, as, as Chelsea turned the tide. And, and it looked like it was going to be just a disaster for Chelsea after the first 30 minutes. Liverpool goes up 2-0, at Stamford Bridge. Romelu Lukaku has not been included in the game day roster by Thomas Tuchel after, and we'll talk about this, uh, a an eye-opening interview, which apparently took place three weeks ago with Sky <laughs> Italia, and, and in which Lukaku said, essentially, I don't like what's happening here with Tuchel at Chelsea. I'm going to be a pro, but I don't like it. And... Tuchel saying, okay, well, you're not going to play this weekend. And the bizarre
1: thing was that, you know, Romelu Lukaku's agent said nice things about Chelsea in, like, recent days before this interview came out. I think probably in a bit of damage control. Uh, (laughs) Lukaku's been pretty positive. Uh, He'd scored some goals, so he was starting to to find his place in the team. What what bizarre timing. You're right. not, Not only, like, if you're Sky Italia, like, why are you sitting on that? Like, unless... You're under, you know, embargo directions from the Lukaku camp. I don't know why you're hanging on to that one. And then what a bizarre backdrop, because not only is it Romelu Lukaku, who had just scored a couple goals, was playing well, he's your big money signing, but also it's been so clear that without him they're struggling to find answers up top. And Pulisic is among that group of players that has not done enough. Mason Mount's the only player who's been scoring and assisting on a regular basis among their attackers. Their system is being called into question. Thomas Tuchel has been incredibly frustrated in the press. So this was a bad time for that. And as you mentioned, you're 2-0 down at home. The atmosphere is probably not great. And then the tide turns. Christian Pulisic, you know, could have scored to make it 1-0 early in the game. Then he scores to make it 2-2. Could have very easily had the winner as well in the second half as well. He played much better. And you can see the areas that he was thriving in. And that's really the opposite of where he's been positioned by Thomas Tuchel in recent times. Playing as that false 9, which is a Pretty bad position for him. And I hope that Greg Berhalter sets that tape on fire and never tries to play that with the, with the US national team. But playing wing back, he's playing more, but he needed to get in the goals. He needed to be influential. And he very much was today after a fairly shaky start.
0: No, it's totally true. And I've got a lot of thoughts on, on various things connected to all of this. For starters, what Lukaku said, I'm not one of these people who thinks that athletes shouldn't be honest. As a journalist, I realize everyone has their own perspective. I like it when athletes say what they think, right? That's kind of what we want. And I'm not going to necessarily criticize somebody for saying honest things. I also don't personally think that... I think Tuchel overreacted by completely shutting out uh, Lukaku on this one. And, um, you know, we'll see. They're supposed to have a meeting on Monday, uh, what comes out of that. But... Um, I thought that was sort of an insecure move by Tuchel. and I realized that other people are going to look at that and say he needed to do that—that that, um, you know, he, you know—to keep the respect of his dressing room. He needed to um, make a firm stand, and they ended up getting a point out of the game. So I guess they saved it to an extent. Um, and then, also too, I I just I look at. Uh, from a media perspective, I always find it interesting when stuff gets like provocative stuff gets said and then it's held for a long time. It doesn't happen very often, but do you remember when Megan Rapino said, Months before the World Cup yes. in 2019, I'm not going to the effing White House. But then it wasn't released until like midway through the tournament. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah. that was like the the classic extreme example of something like that. But clearly, I forget who it was. Was that Howler? I, like, I, I don't somebody, remember actually, yeah. Uh, it was a David Hershey story. That's all I remember. So clearly in that case, the outlet was trying to get maximum impact out of when they released it, and they certainly got it and started a whole Twitter beef between the president and (laughs) Megan Rapinoe. Um, Which, by the way, she won. Uh, But in any case, uh, it's a rare type of thing, and I do think that media outlets need to be clear when they say this took place three weeks ago and, and need to provide full context when they do something like that. And less so in this Lukaku case, but there was a, an example this week with uh, Sebastian Jovinko giving an interview to, I think it was Sky Italia uh, in Italy, um, that the ESPN FC Twitter just totally mistranslated and claimed he was saying that, like, they don't play re- real s- soccer in MLS when that's not what he said at all. And so we've se- we're seeing some things like that happening. And so I do think people that just need to you know, be aware about stuff that's going on, demand full context. And if you have some outlets that are giving you shady stuff or not full context, remember that, don't follow
1: them. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, a high degree of media literacy is required to just get uh, an, an honest brokering of what's happening. But yeah, I mean, the, the Lukaku situation is fascinating just because- you know, first off, again, we're in a position as journalists to want interesting information like that. I invite any future guest of Football with Grant Wall to say similarly scandalous things so that we can <laughs> you know, we can ride the wave of publicity. But, it, it, like, unfortunately, what happens after that is it's just not received well by dressing rooms, by coaches, by everyone. And Lukaku is probably drowning right now in the consequences of having said that and probably wishes that he hadn't. But... It's also an incredible amount of honesty from a guy who I think has a ton of credibility just in terms of how thoughtful he's been throughout his career, how, I mean, the, there was a Players' Tribune story on him that was absolutely incredible about his life and everything that he's gone through. I think he like, speaks like seven languages. He's an incredibly thoughtful character. But, I, you know, this is one of those things that football dressing rooms just do not take well. And so Thomas Tuchel, I, I actually think he was right. Like, I think he would look pretty weak if you do nothing about that, you're like, hey, start up top next game. But uh, they, they've, got, they've got some mending to do there in terms of that situation. You know, a lot of clubs right now are going to have players leave because of African Cup of Nations. And so, you know, that, that squad becomes even thinner. And now Lukaku is going to have to reintegrate himself um, in, a, in a pretty difficult situation.
0: I wouldn't have started him, but I would have included him in the squad. I guess that would have been my thing. That's fair. Which isn't that different from what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But um, you know what's so funny to me is one of the takeaways I had from the two two big Premier League games of the weekend, the other one being Man City getting the late win at Arsenal, which played well, um, is how excited I am for Africa Cup of Nations based on these two games. When you see the players who were involved in these two games who will be at AFCON, Sadio Mane, Mohamed Salah, Edward Mendy, um, and then who in the, the Arsenal Man City? Riyad Mahrez. Uh, yeah. you know, all these guys are going to be... Thomas Partey as well. Yeah, all these guys are going to be involved in the tournament. I'm excited about it. And my latest thing, I hope Watford goes down. And you, you know why Ooh, I hope Watford oh. goes down? Because they are pressuring players to not accept AFCON call-ups from their mm. national teams, like Emmanuel Dennis. And then um, there were a couple of other players, too, for Watford. I saw reports that uh, Senegal had a real issue th- with one of their players. Um, and so whatever Watford's doing, like, that's really lame.
1: What do you mean as Malia who's really good, by the way?
0: Right. So it, I think that stinks. Uh, I just wanted to say that. Um, the other thing while we're talking about media lit- literacy and I'm kind of jumping all over the place, but I'm going on rants <laughs> today. So, um, multiple times recently I have people I see on Twitter who should know better saying that something is official, mm. like a move when they don't seem to understand what the word official means. Official I'm means I'm so with you on this. Is a great announcement. Rant. this- This is like when something is announced officially by a club. That means it's now official, okay? That's what it means if I tweet, now official. And there are a lot of people saying like, Lorenzo Insigne is now official. No, he's not, it hasn't been announced yet.
1: I love this. It's a great rant because I'm so with you when I'm reading things on Twitter. Official means it's been announced, it's done. Pen has hit paper. That's what official means. It's not like, well, because, I mean, and look, basically, when Fabrizio Romano says something, it's official. But that's not the point. <laughs> the point is, is that it's official when the club announces it, it's official when pen hits paper. That is what official means. I'm 100% with you.
0: And just because something isn't official doesn't, if there's like a, a credible report, and, and mm-hmm. Fab does great work, um, that's not a rumor. There's like a, a middle ground between yes. report. rumor. Just, it's called the report. And official. <laughs> <laughs> it just kills me. I realize that's very inside media baseball, but yeah. like, come on, everybody. I'm glad. Um,
1: this, this was a good use of the platform. I like this.
0: <laughs> but let's talk about this Arsenal Man City game because there's a lot to take away from it. First game of the new year. And this was an Arsenal team that. Honestly, should have taken something away from this game Agreed. against a Man City team, which I, I think is now just going to run away with this title. Um, but the way Arsenal played in the first half, and they should have had more goals than they got. But the one that they did get from Saka, just they looked like classic Arsenal, like good Arsenal. And it, it got me very excited.
1: Yes, I thought this is a tremendous performance from them. And I think with the way that Spurs are playing right now, that that's a real race for the top four. And Spurs, because they have all those games in hand, you might look down the table and go, all right, here comes Spurs. West Ham are still playing well. You'd imagine Manchester United will have to get something together. So that race for that final spot in the Champions League is going to be real and Arsenal have to continue to to play well and I think the big rap going into the game I was listening to some previews of the game and it's like ah well Arsenal are going to get hammered because every time they played a big team they've gotten hammered and yet they outplayed Manchester City for a full 90 minutes from start to finish they should have won that game now, we can talk about the refereeing decisions. I'm glad that you didn't, just because it's been the entire conversation around the game, and I think Arsenal Arsenal's performance has been lost. By the way, my favorite player on the pitch was Gabriel Martinelli for for, for Arsenal. Yeah. My God, is, is he's like, dynamic, he's quick. Made Joao Cancel is one of the fastest players in the world. At times, looks slow which was unbelievable. And by the way, uh, certainly thoughts go out to Joel Cansella for what happened to him. He was uh, basically robbed. He was assaulted by four people. And uh, uh, amazing to me that he played after that. But uh, either way, Martinelli, tremendous on the day. And Arsenal were fantastic. However, we have to talk about the decision. So uh, Martin Odegaard <laughs> goes down over Ederson. I've looked at that a 100 times. I understand why Arsenal fans are upset about that but they looked at it. They decided not to review it. I thought it was a penalty on Granite Xhaka, and I thought the two yellow cards were legit on Gabriel, the Arsenal center back. Do you agree?
0: Yes, I do. Gabriel, just totally dumb uh, and, and really hurt his team. Very CONCACAF-y at times yes. in this game. You saw stuff being thrown out of the stands, the scuffing of the penalty spot by Gabriel right before the penalty. That's so CONCACAF. That's not like Premier yes. League. Um and, and so I, I noticed that definitely. Um, I thought Jaka was a penalty. He grabbed his jersey. Um, I also thought the Odegaard one was a penalty and yeah. should have been. Uh, and that could have changed the game uh, and, and wasn't allowed to happen. So um, I can see why Arsenal fans are feeling pretty aggrieved and also why they're not as upset as you might think they would be coming out of this game, even though they got zero points out of it, because I, I think they did play a Man City team in top form and, and outplayed them in this game. So I I think that's very encouraging for Arsenal. Um, and you're right, the top four race is getting more interesting because Spurs is, is just kind of quietly under Antonio Conte getting wins, getting the points they need, getting back into the discussion. The games in hand could be very useful as well. Don't necessarily end up, you know, they don't have to be, but they can be. Um, and then I think in two weeks we see a North London derby that I think could be a lot of fun if both teams are, are going to continue doing what they're doing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I think it's good to have Arsenal in the conversation. I hope it stays that way.
1: Yeah, and this was a huge step forward for them just because of the quality of the opposition and They looked up for it. They didn't... Even in giving up a late goal, you can say, oh, you know, that's arsonally. But the half hour that they played after Gabriel gets sent off, I thought was really solid. At times, they looked the more likely to get the winning goal than Man City did. So this is without Arteta in the technical area because he was out with COVID. So... I think like Arsenal showed a lot of spine in that game that they have not shown in big games, and it was in a different way. It wasn't like you know hanging on to thirty percent of the ball or whatever. They outplayed Man City for large stretches, put them under a ton of pressure as well. So uh, big win for Arsenal, and yet on the Man City side, two games in four days, where against Brentford away and against Arsenal in this game on on New Year's Day. They're away from home in London, difficult circumstances, teams at times outplaying them, making life uncomfortable, and they emerge with six points, and now they're 10 points clear at the top of the Premier League.
0: Yeah, I think it's done, unfortunately, and I think Liverpool is going to be in trouble because they're losing top players for Africa Cup of Nations in a way that Man City is not, um, and I think the league could be even bigger by the time that uh, AFCON is over, so... Um, Yeah, it it is what it is. But uh, before we get to Matt Doyle, I want to let you tell the story of scoring the best goal of your life this weekend, Chris. Yeah, Have at it. So
1: uh, I'll first off start by saying that I'm a bang average soccer player and this is just friend. We've been playing together on a Sunday morning for like six years and we're all terrible, but... Uh, there was a moment where ball pops out uh, like just just beyond the halfway line. Keeper's off his line, and I decided to go for the chip. And uh, and I just I've never hit a ball better in my life. Perfect trajectory, flight of the ball, and it is going down just before the crossbar. So it almost kind of like grazes the underside of the bar and goes in. I had to like lean just to make sure that it went in, but I did score for my own half with a fairly sizable chip. It was, it's on a seven-a-side pitch. It wasn't a full 11-a-side, but I did, I did let one rip from a long distance. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to be – when my head hits the pillow tonight, it's the only thing I'm going to be thinking about is how great that goal was. And that will probably be the case for the next two weeks.
0: Totally get it. Congratulations. Thanks for sharing it. Do you, like, I, I don't play, unfortunately, much anymore. Do you celebrate in situations like that?
1: Uh yeah, yeah, I I, I wheeled away. I had, I had like I had both arms in the air and, and and high-fived all my teammates, but uh yeah, I just generally on like in a in a 7-a-side in a pitch, you don't really celebrate goals. It's kind of bad form just because like there's 15 goals scored a game between either team. So like if you if you did a knee slide out of that, you'd probably look like a jackass, but uh yeah, that was probably I I I I honestly had not prepared for like like I didn't I didn't have a celebration ready. I just kind of jumped up and down like a moron. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I like it. I like it. I'm very happy for you. Thank you. And I hope that you continue to live off that for not just two weeks, but the next two years, whatever you need, my friend. Thanks yes. for coming on. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's our interview with Matt Doyle. Our guest now is one of the top analysts covering the American men's game. Matt Doyle is also known as the armchair analyst for MLSsoccer.com. He's been doing great work for years. And it's way overdue to have him on the show. Matt, thanks for coming on and Happy New Year to you.
2: Yeah, the Happy New Year back at you guys. And uh, thanks for finally having me on. I I was going to be offended that you guys doing the show for so long. Like, did I piss Grant off somewhere along the line? My invitation got lost in the mail. Come on.
0: We've had 587 guests, and you are not one of them, my friend. No, it's uh, it's not quite 587, but it is very much about time that we had you on. Uh, I read all your stuff. I have for a while. And you know what's interesting is, I mean... I have been reading you for so long, but I realized that I don't totally know how you got into this business of what you do as an analyst and media figure. I'm sort of embarrassed that I don't know that story, but what is that story?
2: Uh, It's kind of a roundabout story. Like I, I was a sports writer from the time I was 14, 15 years old. I would, you know, my dad would drive me to local high school, you know, girls volleyball games or whatever was the assignment, and I would, you know, cover the game and then go back to the local paper and file that. When I was a kid, and so I did that throughout high school and then into college. And when I got to college, um, I was at the, in the press box at UConn with guys like Jerry Trecker, Paul Gardner would be there a lot of the time as well, and um, you know a few other of the luminaries who have been around soccer journalism for a while. They kind of taught me to see the game in a different way between that and, and having a lot of discussions with players and, and you know scouts and throughout the, the 90s, basically, it got me to think about the game in a different way. And then at the same time, people like you and Ives were doing such great work, obviously the Soccer America guys as well, interviews, breaking stories, all that sorts of thing. And like, I just knew I could never do that. I don't have an easy way with people. I am not good at just sitting down and and having the types of conversations that I think you need to have to to produce the kind of work that you guys have produced for decades and decades. And as I was sort of having this realization came the rise of sort of the, the world of blogs and specifically basket bloggers, NBA coverage through independent media in the early to mid aughts was like leaps and bounds ahead of anything that I had seen anywhere in soccer. And I, you know, as soon as I saw that, I was like, Ooh, I want to do that. That is what I want to do for major league soccer and for the U S national team. And there was really no opportunity to do that. There was no outlet. I, I was, I don't have the type of hustle where I could have set up my own site, but I was lucky that, you know, the work that I did do found, kind of an audience um, for like other publications. And then I was able to bring it to to Greg Lawless when soccer.com was founded a dozen years ago. Um, and Greg took a chance. And that's that's kind of the long version of, of how I'm here.
0: That's really cool. Appreciate you sharing the story. I, how does someone become a tactics expert?
2: The 10,000 hour rule certainly applies. You know, I, I have kind of a rubric for how I watch games. Um, and I try games that I, I intend to analyze as opposed to just sit back, turn off my brain and enjoy. I, I've sort of run them through that rubric, like how how high a line of confrontation are both teams playing? What types of passes are they hitting from the back? Where and how are they creating space? What is their defensive you know, shape going to be? Um, and, I, and I kind of plug all that into it. And, and from there, it's like, okay, what did you see? And then the other big influence in how to write about tactics it, for, from my perspective, anyway, um, it, it's like film criticism. Like how did Pauline mm-hmm. kale write? How did, you know, Roger Ebert was a brilliant writer and how, like, how they were able to, to, to sort of examine the whole of a, of a work of art a film and then pull out the individual pieces of it that sort of, makes it comprehensible on more than just, oh, here's what the plot was type of, type of analysis. And I, and I wanted to apply that to, to my writing in soccer. And, um, so that was a, like a big and kind of hidden uh, influence over the years. And, um, you know, and when I'm stuck, and we all go into to funks as writers, right? When I'm stuck, I actually don't read other writers. I mean, I read you guys all the time, but like, that's not where I go for inspiration. I will mm-hmm. open... Uh, you know, any kind of film criticism or like Alan Seppenwald does it for, for television, something like that, because I just find the rhythm of it gets my brain going in a way that, you know, most sports media, sports journalism kind of does. not
0: I've had this discussion over the years with people in different shapes and forms. And I can remember back one time in 2015 when Greg Berhalter was the coach of the Columbus crew and I was interviewing him for a story and he asked me, do you consider yourself an expert on soccer? Mm-hmm. And and this is something you run into, right? When you're not a, prof- you weren't a professional player or a coach. And, and what I said to him was, I consider myself an expert on soccer journalism. And I spent a lot of years doing different aspects of that, including writing about games. And I feel comfortable writing about what I saw in the game. But, have you had any experiences, whether it's with coaches or players, who may read your work over the years, and sort of had them challenge you on, "Are you an expert? Do you consider yourself an expert?"
2: Yeah, I mean, all the time, um, <laughs> and sometimes with a with a much better humor than uh, than others. And I'll admit that I um, I take it well. I, I have. A, at times not taking it with as good a humor as I should have. Um, Though that is mostly in the past. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, all of those challenges are worthwhile because a a player who's played the game at at any level, is going to see the game differently than I do. And a coach who's coached the game at any level is going to see the game differently than I do. And I would be stupid. I would be not doing my job to take their feedback and, you know, kind of filter out the insults that are, you know, invariably a part of this, but it felt, to you know, take that feedback and and pull it apart and and try to figure out, you know, what I can take from that to be better at my job. And that is like, that is essential to me being good at my job in any way.
0: The point I always make is Pauline Kael and Roger Ebert weren't film directors, they were film critics, just as Pete Wells is a wonderful restaurant critic for the New York Times, but we aren't asking Pete Wells to be a master chef. And they're they're different things. So that's kind of the point I always make when it comes to the sports realm as well. And and end of rant from me.
1: So I wanted to ask you about Uh, because you mentioned like seeing the game I think how people see the game evolves over time it depends on kind of what you like I imagine there are a lot of you know analysts who might view the game through a defensive lens and there might be people who want to see the quote beautiful game played and the possession and build up and all this stuff and that has changed over time what would you say is kind of the way that you view the game and how much have different factors like I know you guys have like second spectrum data and analytics and XG and all this and all these different things that have been introduced over time affected the way that you write about soccer?
2: That's uh, a really good question. Um, I, I go into every game hoping to see a beautiful attacking performance from two teams, and I get pissy if I don't get that a, a lot of times. <laughs> um, so that's number one. And I, I sort of reverse engineer my, my thoughts on the game from there. Like, oh, here's where they fell short. And like this is a, a failing of mine, and I have to be better at it because it, like it it's not always oh they didn't live up to my ideal idealized view of how soccer should be played like that's bad writing if I do that every time so it's something that I have to catch myself or every column of mine will sound the same So that's one as for how integration of data and analytics um, and second spectrum especially now we're, which we're still working on like it, we're just tip of the iceberg with that I mean I From the jump, I saw them as super valuable tools to try to tell a better and deeper story. They're also crutches. And one of the things I haven't been able to do as effectively over the past decade as I've wanted to is really give a playbook for how to effectively and responsibly use statistics in soccer like they, you can't like we until second spectrum we only ever collected events data events data is useful but events data i mean 90 percent of the game happens away from the ball events data can tell you something about that 10 percent, but even that 10 percent might not be telling you the thing you think like player x has you know 15 duels that they got into oh wow it's Doing a good job getting stuck in defensively. Well, it doesn't tell. It might tell you that, but it might also tell you that they're attacking his side because he's a bad defender. He got into so many duels because they went at him for ninety minutes. And so taking that stuff out of you know the 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 compendium of stats now that's produced after every game and making sure to weave it into the overall context, really the eye test um, sort of uh, version of the game. That is something that has like that is always a work in progress. And as we get more and more advanced statistics um, and smarter and smarter people working on it, um, it's, I think it's going to be easier, but we always have to be, I don't want to say cynical, we have to be skeptical of of any sort of advanced stat um, to the point of, like, like, let's make sure this stuff is peer-reviewed before we're deciding that it's telling us what it says it's telling us.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I, I, one thing with John Madden's death this week, it made me think that no U.S. national TV outlets have hired a soccer figure like Madden, a former coach with a telestrator who could broadcast games and connect with the audience, but also show tactics and it makes me wonder if sometimes i guess i feel like national tv is almost afraid to do that with soccer why do you think that is
2: it's interesting that madden is is like he he was one of the all-time great nfl coaches right and then he went on to become one of the all-time great color commentary commentators in any sport at least in in american sports uh, over the past 45 years um, and it feels like lightning in a bottle. What I would say, like, why is there no John Madden? Because like John Madden is one of a kind. As for mm-hmm. leaning into the telestrator stuff and, and breaking down the tactics, I actually think that you know both Fox and ESPN have made significant jumps in the past half decade on that. Like we're we are past the part the point where you know we would have Dave O'Brien coming in to do play by play on. You know, for for a World Cup or, or or trying to turn Gus Johnson into a soccer play-by-play guy, and so that indicates that the decision makers took it more seriously. But I also think that you know guys like Stu Holden and Taylor Twelman, I think they're a lot better than certainly the 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 Hoy poloy on Twitter gives them credit for. But I both I think they're both a lot better than they were even three four years ago at integrating that sort of thing. Um, and I think that as soccer viewership. Kind of matures in the U.S. I I think that they will find uh, even more ways to to sort of raise their level as the level of the game itself uh, is raised in the U.S.
0: And I would agree with that on on Stu Holden and Taylor Twelman. It's it is interesting to me that aside from maybe Ray Hudson and Thomas Rongen, who haven't had a full national audience to some extent, that we haven't seen that many former coaches. doing um, analysis on on soccer broadcasts. I'm curious to see who that might be in the future, potentially. But um, in terms of, like, if you had to pick one recent tactical trend, like right now, that you think is particularly intriguing in the game, what would it be and why?
2: I think uh, the the sudden shift to three at the back, um, certainly in MLS, has been has sort of rearranged the way games happen last year in 2020 in MLS. It was, I think 12 or 13% of games featured a team with a back five. Um, If you've gone to like 2017 or 2016, I don't think there was a single team in the league that played with a back three or a back five this year, in the second half of the year, it was almost 50%. Hmm. um and formations aren't tactics but formations and tactics sort of work hand in hand uh and, and that's certainly the case in mls and i think it's the case uh basically in any league in the world and it, it's it, it's it's an interesting thing because most teams still play with one striker right and the back five the back three kind of died out when teams shifted to from two striker setups to to one striker setups. And so the way a back five or back three functions now is actually very different from the way it functioned 25 years ago. And it's more advanced in Italy, especially, I think, though obviously with all the great coaches in the world going to the Premier League, what we're seeing out of of those teams is um, different on almost a weekly basis. Uh, but it, it's opening up sort of new possibilities and how teams play. My regret is that I think most of these possibilities are defensive. Um, mm. I I still like a good three five two. I think these three four threes or three four two ones, if you want to call them that, and I I actually prefer calling them that. Um, they are interesting and they can get the most out of certain players. Um, but in general, I don't think that you see as much pretty soccer out mm. of out of these back threes um, as you do out of a kind of a standard back four. Um, And so while it's an interesting and and potentially uh, game-changing tactical trend, I'm not sure it's one I love.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So we're recording this on Thursday, December 30th and coming out on Monday, January 3rd. And I'm curious to see if we get an official announcement from Toronto before we come out on their pursuit of Napoli's Lorenzo Insignia. He's out of contract at the end of this Italian season and able to officially sign with a new team as soon as January 1. So it's possible. So let's say Toronto gets their man for what appears to be a huge record-breaking salary for MLS. What do you make of this? Yeah, it... Been
2: discussing that with friends because it's like that it, it it feels like a different type of signing. insignia is still in his prime, he's a starter for the Italian national team. He started as they won the Euros, he started six or seven games, including the final. He is a star for his hometown club, Napoli. And he's he's never been signed to any other club. Uh he's played because everybody in Italy goes out on loan at some point. So he's played for other clubs, but he's always been a Napoli guy. It you know it it's not like David Beckham David Beckham was a couple of years older he was clearly on the downslope it's not like Javinko Javinko was still in his like he was in smack dab in his prime but he was never the level of player uh, that insignia has been for a decade now and you know talent wise I think Vela is right there with him but Vela is a mercurial kind of guy and insignia has been anything but he, year after year after year he has put up numbers um, it, so it feels like this could be a game-changing type of signing. And some MLS team was always going to be the first to sign this type of guy. Um, It looks like Toronto might beat everyone to the punch. The question is then, once they get him in, does he produce? Does he live up to it? Is he an MVP caliber player? He should be. Like we've all seen him play. He's really good. Um, But we all know that hasn't necessarily worked out like that for a lot of guys with great pedigrees in the past. The difference is again, he's in his prime. That should be a game changer for Toronto FC. They certainly need a little bit of a shot in the arm after the past couple of years Uh, and playing for Bob Bradley I mean, I I said I'm, I am, you know, I'm dying for pretty soccer. Every time I turn on a game, well, I'll be turning on a lot of Toronto FC games with Bob Bradley managing Insignia on
1: the field. Even without Insignia, I think there could be a really compelling yeah. watch. But I guess my my question to you would be, with those star signings that have happened before, we've seen David Villa work, and we've seen countless others that have him. When you study the big DPs, even like, I think Chicharito is an example of, from year one to year two, how to not build a structure around a star and how to build a structure around a star. What, for you, are the things that work around these sorts of players that teams get wrong when they bring in big, famous signings and it doesn't work out on the field?
2: Yeah, I mean, first and foremost is buy-in. And I feel like Grant could almost talk to this better than, than I could, because who, who knows the stories of DPs and, and buy-in uh, at that level better than Grant, who literally wrote the book on it. Um, you need to have that kind of culture. And I think that if you have a culture that produces that, um, then you're going to be fine. Barring injuries, you're going to be fine almost no matter what. Um, now, there's a difference between being fine and being truly great. I think that the teams that have become truly great in you know building around their DPs, they've tended to have really good coaches. Um, and all this works hand in hand. But like, if you have a good coach who puts out a team with a clear identity, players are going to be happy. If players are going to be happy they're going to buy in. That includes DPs. And that is like the not so secret sauce right there. Once you get to that point, you can start adding some bells and whistles. You start doing the stuff that Tata did with Atlanta United, that Bob did with LAFC and and produce something kind of transcendent, but you need those first level things first. Um, And if you have that, then like there's almost no ceiling for what you you can accomplish in this league.
0: It is fascinating to me. We're, in year 2022 now uh and like we're still talking about bob and bruce like you know bruce arena's (laughs) team set the record for the regular season points this past season breaking the lafc record set by bob bradley i mean these guys have been around forever and i'm i'm fascinated by this bob bradley in toronto situation they were truly terrible last season in Mm -hmm. toronto Bob Bradley in now, not just as the coach, but the sporting director, which I find interesting. What's reasonable for Toronto to aspire to in 2022?
2: 60 points, given the amount of money that they're going to spend on, on players, given the amount of talent that comes through that academy, given the type of success that Bob Bradley has had in MLS for you know 25 years on and off. Um, okay, 60 points seems reasonable. Now, wow. it's going to... Yeah, Right. But like, if you're spending that kind of money, you're not spending it for sneaking into the playoffs on 47 points. And you're certainly not spending it for what happened in 2021. Like, the teams that, that have big appetites like this, I think, got to have high internal standards. And I don't think Bob Bradley himself would be happy with 50 points. Well, he probably wouldn't even be happy with 75 points because that's just how he is. And that's great. Like, that is what you want. Uh, sort of calling the shots, but like, given the, the talent they're going to have in this roster, um, they like, I'm not going to say anything less than 60 points is a disappointment, but like, if, if you write down a number on the whiteboard at the start of the season, 60 points seems reasonable to me.
1: So uh, we're talking about Bob Bradley and about a big signing, but there was a trend a couple of years ago when Guillermo barros came into the league uh, with Matias Almeida coming into the league, having won trophies, even Diego Alonso in Miami, having won the Champions League a couple of times that there was these big profile foreign managers that came in and didn't really... Have that success, and Bob Bradley and Bruce Serena are still out here doing it. There's a lot of you know teams right now that are hiring m l s assistants to be yeah. their 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 full time coaches because of that domestic experience. I guess my question to you would be why do you think that those other coaches didn't work, and kind of like what is it the essence of the American game that you think some coaches that come into the league don't get yeah it, it's
2: I, I wish I had a clear answer on it, but like it, it has to vary. Situation by situation, and obviously coach by coach. Like Scalotto was given all the resources in the world in LA, and he, like Boca Juniors fans, warned us, like, he's actually not that good a coach. And (laughs) turns out he's probably not that good a coach. Diego Alonso, I think, is a good coach. I think he's a very good coach. And the reason that didn't work out in Miami, I don't think had anything to do with the coach. I think a lot of that had to do um, with the whole structure of that team, uh, which they are going to be sorting through for the next three years at least, but it does seem like they're on a better track now. I think with Chris Anderson running that front office and, and making the kind of moves that seem designed to build a a more solid foundation. Um, But it's, it's hard to say, right? Because like Patrick Vieira didn't have any MLS experience. He was awesome with NYCFC. Obviously, Tata is sort of the gold standard for, you know, importing coaches. And I think a reason why suddenly MLS teams were looking for uh, the next Tata when they were hiring uh, Scalotto and Diego Alonzo and the rest. Um, so it, it tends to go in cycles. But as for, you know, why it works for or what is different about us soccer i think i mean obviously it has to come down to the salary cap and the the structure of how teams are built right you have to be willing to develop a 23 year old in a way that you, you probably aren't developing 23 year olds in south america or in europe or most of the world, really. Um, there's more, I think, untapped potential in a lot of American kids that in their early to mid-20s, um, relatively speaking, compared to most of the rest of the world. And It's because most of the rest of the world has uh, more robust player developmental systems and um, more sort of like on-the-job know-how or decades of it in terms of getting kids from age 12, you're in the academy, age 20, you're in the first team. Other countries have been doing this for a century and, and we've been doing it for 10 years at most. So I think if I if I had to put my finger on one thing, that would that would probably be it. But it's got it, I also think it, it there are probably a thousand different other factors that we're just we haven't identified yet. And if we could, then we would collectively be the greatest GM in soccer history, but you know, (laughs) that'll have to wait for another day.
0: There's a a couple other specific MLS teams I wanted to ask you about. One of those is LAFC, which sort of appears at a crossroads. What do you see happening there with a new coach? Uh, We haven't seen one named yet. Uh, The potential of Carlos Vela returning and, and the challenge for GM John Thorrington.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a big one. And it, it's weirdly not getting a ton of, press right now, this off season, but the fact that LAFC still no coach, they're making huge moves, even while not having a coach. Um, It's, you know, they've been linked to guys who have great profiles as players, but haven't maybe done it as as head coaches in the past. Um, It's a weird situation and it's especially, I think it would be especially concerning if as LAFC fan, Um, given that this team has, um, shed, I mean, they've shed talent over the past two years and they haven't shown an ability to replace that talent at a high level. Most of the new signings they've made over the past couple of years have kind of underwhelmed. No, there've also been guys like Christian Arango, who was very, very good the second half of the season, but even with it, with that, um, they didn't get to the playoffs man (laughs) like that was a massive underachievement for a team that played a lot of good soccer and supposedly had a lot of talent out there um you know john thornton i i'm not saying it's a put up or shut up year for him but it's I have to imagine that if they're, you know, a 45-point team again, his seat is going to be really, really hot this time next year.
0: And then you have the the new MLS champions, New York City, which could be facing some significant turnover. Are, are you expecting that the Golden Boot winner, Tati Castellanos, uh, and even uh, Sands, James Sands, might be leaving before the season?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not as plugged in with, with the transfer mill uh, as as I think some other people are, but it, it certainly seems like Tati wants to go to Europe. And I know right now the big bid is from Palmeiras, um, which is you know, the biggest team in the Americas right now, probably. So like, if you're not going to go to Europe, that seems like a good landing spot. But like, NYCFC have shown if the money's right and the player's happy with the move, they will sell. Um, and that's fine. That's where MLS is as a league right now. We need teams to be willing to do that and then show the initiative to go out and get more talent and then the ability to develop that talent. Um, And NYCFC have checked a lot of those boxes. Uh, So am I expecting it? I think I am. I'm not necessarily convinced it's going to be Palmaris. I do think somebody from Europe will see Tati as a guy who can help them. Uh, I'm not 100% convinced James Sands is going to go to Rangers, um, but it does seem like he's gone. And it stinks from NYCFC's, like a NYCFC fan's perspective, because this team, if they keep them whole, they have a chance to win CCL. Like they're a really, really good team. Um, But that's a game, man. Like you got, like, it's a step for MLS to win CCL, but it's also a step for MLS to get teams to the point where you can sell $15 million players and immediately replace them from within. Once MLS teams hit that step, then it's like, okay, this is is what we've all wanted to see for 25 years now, and we're here. And it's a big step. And I don't think anybody's really that close to hitting it, but given what we've seen from NYCFC, they might be the closest.
0: Now, we've got some teams under new or relatively new ownership in Houston, Orlando, and Chicago who look like they're ready to spend. And I'm wondering, of those three teams, which are you sort of the most... Confident about sort of making a jump from, I, I guess Orlando like made a, made the playoffs last year, but like moving forward, which of those three teams excites you the most?
2: I mean, probably Orlando. Just uh, I'm a big fan of Oscar Pareja. Um, he he's been a winner in this league for a decade, and uh, I think if he had his druthers, he would play attractive attacking soccer all the time. Uh, he doesn't get to do that. He certainly didn't get to do that this past year with this Orlando City team, which was. Pretty tough to watch, though, mostly effective. Um, But with the type of talent they're talking about bringing in, like that is a team that would go up near the top of my, you know, I've got to watch the full 90 every week, sort of power rankings with Houston. um, It's interesting because they're doing a whole overhaul, right? Like, like it seems obviously they've brought back a few players, but like it's a, it's a new vision. It's a new GM. It's a new coach. Um, so I, I obviously want to see how that works out. The fire, it's not bad, that. And that's the weird thing of these three teams. It almost feels wrong to lump the fire in because even though they're willing to spend, they're also, they've also broadcast on him Jimenez back. And like he's not a DP. You know? <laughs> like, we've got two years of data on that. Like, he, he has not been very good in this league. And they, they're still sticking with you know, Heights as, as the GM. Yeah. So it's, 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 uh, is it going to be more of the same? I, I don't know. I'm not gonna guarantee it, but it seems like they have doubled down on the people who got them there in this you know, in the first place.
0: I do want to ask you a little bit about the US men's national team, three big qualifiers mm-hmm. coming in late January, early February. What stands out to you about these upcoming games against El Salvador, Canada, and Honduras? I, I mean, everybody's
2: focusing on the on the Canada game, it, which is understandable given that Canada and the US are, are first and second in in the standings. And, um, you know, Canada is capable of some absolutely brilliant soccer, and they've showed it against the U.S. and Mexico, I, I think, a cycle earlier than most people thought they would. Um, and so that feels like the big one, but it's not. It's not. <laughs> it is the least important game of the three because if the U.S. take care of business and get six points against El Salvador and Honduras, then the U.S. has probably made the World Cup. Um, and I like, look, I'm not saying to completely blow off the Canada game, but the focus has to be on taking care of business at home. And what I'm hoping to see is that U S performance that they put out against Mexico, um, a, a couple, a couple months ago now, uh, and, and bottle that and take that to the field with them against El Salvador and Honduras. Play like that and they will win all their remaining home games and they will get back to the World Cup. Um, So I want to see that. I want to see that level of clarity of purpose with the ball. I want to see that level of aggression without the ball and and sort of be a team that can disorganize the opponents by playing against the ball or playing with it. and I, you know, I want to see them create chances. And it's the weirdest thing about Greg Berhalter as is, is the U.S. men's national team head coach. Like his Columbus teams, year after year after year, no matter who the center forward was—Jossi Zardes, Kai Kamara, Ola Kamara—didn't matter. They create, like, they created tap for those center forwards, time after time after time. And if there's been one thing that the U.S. has not really done a very good job of under Greg Berhalter, it's create those kinds of chances. For, for whoever's playing center forward. So I want to see that from the US uh, in these games. I, I mean, obviously, I'd like to see a win against Canada as well, um, but I won't pry if that doesn't happen as long as the US play as well. And like as good a year as it was, checking boxes, beating Mexico three times and being in a good position to qualify, it still feels like the US is not, it still feels like the US is, 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 something less than the sum of its parts most times it take the field. And, uh, you know, I don't entirely blame Burhalter for that, but, like, that Mexico game was a chance to see what it would look like when all of these really talented young players are sort of in sync and bringing it, and I want more of that.
0: No, that totally makes sense. I, would you like to see Christian Pulisic make a move somewhere in January, whether it's a loan or a sale?
2: Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm ca- so, sort of caught in two minds in that one because, like, I I like that he's not being asked to start and go 90 minutes every game because I I just want him to stay healthy and reasonably sharp uh, over the next 10 months going into into cutter, right? I don't like if he was going to become, uh, you know, an Eden Hazard level winger at Chelsea, I think we would have seen that start to happen by now. And certainly the fact that Tuchel doesn't play with wingers, doesn't help that. Um, So I I have sort of given up the ghost this cycle of expecting Pulisic or wanting Pulisic to be a truly world-class player. Like it's just not going to happen in the system. So now I just want him to be healthy for the next 12 months. After that though, I desperately want to see him make a move. I want him. I want to see him play every week as a winger, be it on the right or the left so it, you know, it doesn't have to be one of the biggest clubs. Go back to Borussia Dortmund, you know, and, and play the next six years for Borussia Dortmund and be the best player on that team for, for half a decade. Like, I would I would absolutely love that. But for the next 10, 12 months, I just want him to be healthy. And I think limiting his reps, be it at, you know, second forward or a false nine or even a wing back, uh, making sure he doesn't get burnt out is the best way to do that. So I'm fine for now, uh, but long term. He's got to play as a winger if he's going to be the type of player we all think he could be. You
0: know, sometimes I find myself wishing that you could write more magazine-style stories because you wrote an absolutely fantastic one for Howler, I think, way back in the day, Mm -hmm. looking at the history of U.S. men's national team tactics during World Cups going back to 1990. What did you learn during that process of reporting and writing?
2: Uh, I mean, it was... Most of all, it was just fun to have an excuse and go back and and, and watch sixty odd games. It was more than that, actually. Over you know, starting back from the the nineteen ninety qualifying cycle, all the way through to what was then the the very early Jurgen Klinsmann tenure. Um, You know, a couple of things stood out. We had more skill than um, than I think people give us credit for. There's a there's a longstanding trope that you know U.S players have sort of uh, elephantine first touch and, you know, are not uh, the types who can do anything with the ball. That was never actually true. We had guys who could do that. What we never really had was um, the type of structure that would allow us to dominate the game with the ball and sort of weaponize that skill from within possession. We were always sort of content, now, content is not the right word, but we were always sort of, um, I guess, committed to being a team that wants to pull you upfield and then attack space. And it worked really well for a, a real long time. And I still think that is the, uh, the DNA of U.S. soccer and is what Greg Berhalter, Berhalter is trying to change a little bit, trying to make a team that uh, is able to, to weaponize the skill that's inherent in in the pool now Um, on a personal level. What I learned is that those guys from the nineties who got us there for the first time in 40 years um, and then kept us there over the course of, of a a number of uh, uh, world cups and, and doing great stuff in Copa America and confederations cup as well. uh, They took real pride in it. They, they were all country before club. Type of guys, um, and I don't think there's a shock to anyone who sort of knows anything about the history of U.S. soccer. It's not a shock to learn that from that from that group. And we're in a different era now, mm-hmm. um, and it's harder to balance club and country when you're playing for literally the European champions, of Chelsea, or the biggest team in uh, Italy, or, or you know one of the two biggest clubs in in La Liga and finding that balance now is a challenge, not just for the players and the staff, but also for the fan base. And we're kind of a, a, a I think a naive and sort of growing fan base. Um, that's having to wrestle with the emotions of what all of this means, especially when just putting guys, just having you know, eight guys at some of the best clubs in the world doesn't automatically mean you're going to go dominate Panama. It doesn't, it's never worked that way for Mexico. It's never worked that way for us. And we've seen over the past, a lot of damage in the world cup. Um, So I, I guess I've kind of strayed far afield from what you originally asked, but I like, I, it's hard not to think of that piece I wrote a decade ago now um, in the context of what we're seeing with this iteration of the U.S. team.
0: We talked a little bit about Greg Berhalter's tactics with the U.S. men's national team. Post burhalter whenever that may be, who are some coaches out there whose tactics and approach you think would be a good fit for coaching the U.S. men's national team?
2: Uh. So I I honestly think the most important thing to have as a coach for the international game is flexibility. Um, I I don't think it's a place to be dogmatic or an ideologue, uh, which is why like Luis Enrique is maybe the best international manager in the world right now. And it's part because I think he's just a brilliant manager, but also like he can win 10 different ways. You know, and all of it is grounded in that Spanish style. Uh, they play beautiful soccer. They use the ball. But there are times where if he wants his team to, you know, get out into the open field and try to win that way, he will do that. And I think that flexibility is the biggest thing. Now, obviously, Luis Enrique would be very nice coach for the U.S. <laughs> national team, be it in 2023 or in 2027, where uh, whenever the, the changing of the guard happens. Um, but from... You know, just keeping it within our little world of MLS, Jim Curtin seems like the guy. Um, his ability to develop players is obviously amongst the best in the league. Um, to get more out of players who are kind of lightly regarded is amongst the best in the league. But also, three years ago, it his Philadelphia team played like Berhalter's crew team. You know, four two three one, have the demon drop back, split the defenders, both fullbacks push up. 55, 60% possession, you know, create tons of chances from out wide, get into the half spaces, all that. Then, you know, Ernst Tanner came in and he's a Red Bull guy. And it's like, you know, Jim had to change his approach to how his team plays. And he did. And they won the supporter shield playing kind of like Red Bull style soccer. And that's pretty far from the type of possession heavy soccer that we saw this team, you know, climb into the playoffs with year after year after year um, leading up to that point. So that type of flexibility, whether, you know, playing a four four two, 4 played a four three two one 2 one down the stretch this year, obviously a 4-2-3-1, in the, like that type of flexibility, I think, speaks well of his potential as an international head coach Um, and it's probably why he's the first one who jumped to mind.
1: You mentioned the eight or nine players we have playing at at Europe's biggest clubs and how that might not necessarily lead to success well I understand that and we've talked to Landon Donovan a lot over the last couple months about this I still don't really believe it I still wish that we played better but on on a semi-related note why do you think the U.S. has gotten better about talent development? Was this always inevitable, or was this kind of the learning that we've done over the course of a generation of actually having a domestic league?
2: Yeah, I think it's it's mostly that. It just we've had a domestic league for a generation. Well, there's a bunch of things, right? So that's one domestic league. Two, there's more soccer on TV. Like you, it's so easy to watch good soccer anytime of day basically 365 days a year um and and just having that out there i think gives kids better access to understanding the principles of uh how the game should be played how the game can be played and like i don't play soccer video games but i know that a lot of kids grow up playing soccer video games and you know, I suspect that helps a lot as well. And I know that it's not the same thing, um, but you do familiar si- familiarize yourself, at least with formations and, you know, off ball work and stuff like that. Um, but then the other thing is like people who grew up with the game now are fathers and mothers of kids who are playing the game and they have a baseline ability to sort of coach that kid in the street or in the backyard or down at the park, wherever it happens to be, that I'm not sure existed outside of a few select pockets in America uh, 25, 30 years ago. Um, the way I put it, it, it more more than a decade ago when I was writing about this, um, it, like at, basically every American father could take the kid into the backyard and teach him how to throw a baseball, shoot a hoop. Like there's the baseline competence with the sport. If I had asked my dad to teach me how to kick a soccer ball in any, you know, at any level of competence, 40 years that he would have laughed at me. He probably did. I probably did ask him. He's like, no, that's not. (laughs) Um, So I, I think that there are just more people who have been around the game for longer and then the, the the other part is like the academy initiative the academy initiative is 13 years old now and the first generation nobody knew what they were doing other than maybe the red bulls and now there are probably 20 teams that know what they're doing and so you're getting kids not just from philly and, and dallas but you're, you're getting kids from dc and, and the revs are suddenly had a, you know very productive academy and you know the sounders and, and so it it's it's just a different era and all these things have coalesced to the point where now it's not a genuine shock if, you know, we're selling a kid for ten million dollars to a to a Champions League club. Now it has become the expectation. And um it's been a long time getting here, but we're here.
0: Matt Doyle is the armchair analyst for MLS soccer dot com. You should most definitely check out his work. Matt, thanks for coming on the show. It was a genuine pleasure, boys. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Matt Doyle as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. Happy New Year!